hurt David's feelings. <laughs> Book of Haggai. We have a traditional Christmas message. Book of Haggai. Anybody read it this week? If you were here with us Wednesday night, we uh, kind of gave an overview of it. I won't try to rehash that whole conversation, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background. If you can't find it, go to Matthew and then go back three books. A little little book, it's only two pages. You probably haven't read it recently. If you had, you probably don't remember what it's about. Um, it's just not one, it's not a big ticket book, right? Haggai. Don't ask me to spell it, right? Okay. I'm going to read the first two verses. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come the time that the Lord's house should be built. So we've got a lot of people mentioned. We've got a specific time frame. And if you don't have this clear in your head, this book won't mean anything to you. Um, so I want you to flip back to another book. That's the book of Ezra. Another popular book. Go back before Psalms. After Judah, the southern kingdom went into a captivity for a period of 70 years, as the Lord prophesied several hundred years before that, they were going to be released by a king, a Gentile king named Cyrus. He was the king of Persia. Persia conquered the empire of Babylon. All right? In his first year, I'm going to read here in Ezra 1, that the Lord stirred him up to do two things. Send the Jews back to Jerusalem and their land and tell them to build the house of the Lord. The first temple that was built by Solomon was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies when Judah went into captivity, along with Jerusalem and the walls, and it was just a ruined heap. They were not going to allow this city to be any more of a trouble spot because Jerusalem had been subject to several different kings, and they kept rebelling. And so, and so we're going to put a stop to that. So the temple was destroyed along with most of the city and the walls. So here you are in the first year of uh, Cyrus, king of Persians, reign. This is Ezra 1. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That was the prophecy that was spoken that um, Cyrus would be the one to release them. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and saying, put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. The Persian empire was vast. You can't even contemplate how big this thing was. All the kingdoms of the earth, he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Okay, so that's task one. He's told me, i got to build a house. Task two, who is there among you of all his people, the Jews, his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. 
And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of the place help him with silver and gold and with goods and with beasts, besides the freewill offering from the house of God that is Jerusalem. So you've got whoever wants to go, you've got permission to go. Whoever stays behind, help him with stuff. And then, verse 5 says, Then arose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All right? So the Lord, Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to do this. I mean, he's a Gentile king over a vast empire, and he suddenly got the notion, I need to go build the temple to the God of Israel. He doesn't he didn't worship, he was not a worshiper. He's, but he's been told, i got to do this, he's the God, his people have to build it, y'all are free to go, go. And then the Lord stirred up the people. And so they make this first trek back to Israel after the captivity. The leaders of this was uh, Zerubbabel. He is of the descendants, the lineage of King David. Right? Now he's going to be the governor. He's not the king. Cyrus is the king of everything over here. There's not a king they're putting up, but he's going to be the governor. Zerubbabel. And then his right hand man or the second leader will be Joshua, who's going to be the high priest, or Jeshua, spelled with an E and an O, same guy. All right, and just to keep it confusing, Zerubbabel had two names. Sheshbazazar, Sheshbazazar, I can't say it. It's Persian. That's the same name for um, Zerubbabel. That's his Persian name. So if you look that up in Strong's, it'll literally say the Persian name of Zerubbabel. Right? But if you see that, that's why it's confusing. And governor can also be called a Tarshith. But anyway, neither here nor there. That's free knowledge. So Zerubbabel gets a band of folks that the Lord has stirred up. He's got about 42,000 folks who say, okay, we're going to leave where we've been in captivity most of our lives now, um, and we're going to trek months and months and months back to our homeland, which is destroyed, and we're going to try to start to to rebuild. All right, so they go back, and I'm just going to paraphrase to get us through this, and they get together in the seventh month of the year in Jerusalem. All right, this is chapter 3, and they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles which they haven't celebrated since it was all destroyed. And so the first thing they do is they set up a new altar. The one had been destroyed, so they set up an altar and they start reinstituting the sacrifices that they had to do. You had the daily sacrifice, you had weekly sacrifice, you had monthly sacrifices, and then you had the special annual ones on top of all the free will. So there's a lot of sacrifices you should be doing. Hadn't been done this whole time, so the first thing they do, boom, we got an altar. All right? We celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That's good. Six months later, now the whole purpose they came was to rebuild the temple. So six months later, um, they actually start construction. They start laying the foundation. All right, and it's from that point an opposition movement really starts to grow. All right, this is serious. One thing is just talk, but when you start doing something, then opposition tends to show up. Right, and so at first it's the Samaritans, the folks who were put there by the Assyrian Empire in the northern kingdom. Remember, Israel went into captivity first. But somebody wanted them to work the land, and so they put some folks there, and they taught them just enough to worship the God of uh, Israel so that he wouldn't send lions among them to destroy them. So they had kind of this muck religion where they kind of gave lip service to serving God, but they still served their idols, all right? These are the folks who come down to the, the uh, you know, where they're building and say, hey, we want to help. And Zerubbabel says, no, you have nothing to do with this. You're not Jews. This is nothing. none of your affair. Go away, okay? And they do go away. But they go away mad. And so from that moment on, they become adversaries to this rebuilding project of rebuilding the temple. So they start hiring lobbyists to go to the king and start trying to hinder the work. 
All right, now the first king that they would send lobbyists to is Cyrus himself. He commissioned it. You're not going to get very far. Right? They didn't get anywhere. Eventually, his reign ends. How long it lasts, I don't know. Doesn't really say. Doesn't matter. Then. Next one comes up. It's going to be King uh, Ahasuerus. This is Ezra 4, verses uh, 4 through 5. They hired counselors to frustrate their purpose. Um, so in reign of Ahasuerus, they wrote letters of accusation. It doesn't say that he gave an answer or anything. Nothing happened. And so that king, his reign ends. You go to the next king. They're still mad about it, still frustrating it. And this is in the day of, days of Artaxerxes. So your third king of overall Persia. They send him a letter saying, hey, this is a rebellious city back in the past. If you let them rebuild, they're going to rebel. They're not going to pay your taxes, and that's going to hurt your revenue stream. You know, the money that's coming into your kingdom. And Artaxerxes, he, he, he understood that. He took that serious. He said, whoa, you tell them to stop. The king shouldn't be damaged by having less money come in. Stop the building. So it stopped. They were gleeful when they got their response. They went down to Jerusalem right away, this opposition, and they said, you got to stop. The king said so. And they did. And they didn't build again for the whole rest of Artaxerxes' reign. And then he goes away, and there's a new king over... Persia, which is Darius. Right? And the work, this is 24, it says, the work of the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay? And that gives us to Ezra 5. 5 verse 1. Then the prophets, Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. That's your background. That's where we get to the book of Haggai. This is what Haggai and Zechariah are tasked with, prophesying unto these people who are not doing what the Lord sent them there to do. I mean, there's several miracles that are already involved getting them, changing a Gentile, the heart of a Gentile king, just in the Lord's hands. He can do with it whatever so he will, and he did. And he gave them some very specific and odd tasks, looking at it from the outside, and put them there, stirred up their heart, sent them resources with it, and now they're not doing it. Okay? So, Haggai. Let's go back to Haggai. So that's the second year of Darius. That's the king that we're talking about. Fourth king, Cyrus, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, down to Darius. It's not a quiz on the names, but chronologically, that's where we're at. Second year. And we're going to pick up in the sixth month of the Jewish calendar, on the first day of the month. That's when Haggai comes, and this is what he says. This is the first thing the Lord says. Let us speak at the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie in waste? So all this time, since they had the commandment to stop, they have been justifying to themselves, well, it's not time. It's not time to work again. It, you know, we need something else, something, something, it's just not now. And so the Lord is, is sending that something else. And he's, he's convicting them, saying, you all live in sealed, watertight houses. You're not sleeping in tents anymore. My house is still laying in waste. What do you mean you're saying it's still not time? And so there are some things that hindered them, right? You could call them excuses. You could call them challenges. I don't care what you call them. But there are things that had, had it hindered them. And the first one was fear, right? 
you were banned from doing this work by now the highest man authority in the land. That can be fearful. You also have local spies who are living and watching your every move, and when you do things that they don't like, they report it back to the highest authorities. Right? Not only that are these spies, they're very interested in putting their money where their mouth is, and they're willing to pay people, lobbyists, counselors, to go plead against you. You don't live in an area where you have a guaranteed freedom to do this. Fear, that's... That's legitimate, right? The fear fear of men, fear of your situation. What else could be hindering them? How about discouragement? They're too little for this task. We tried. We had to stop. There's not enough of us. There's only 42,000 men that came back. You know how many Solomon had working on the original temple? Like 150,000 for years. Us? Just us? We're not good enough. We can't do this. We don't have the resources. Solomon had all the resources that David had accumulated. David wanted to build a temple. God said, no. He said, okay, well, I'm going to amass stuff. Stones and and cedar and gold, all of it. Stockpile. And then Solomon, who was the wealthiest king to live, right? He had all this stuff, all his resources, all the labor. And here we are, a few meager. We've We've got a little bit. But when we first started off, we had the king's blessing, and he was helping us now. We don't have that anymore. You're discouraged. You don't feel like you can accomplish it. Or maybe you're looking at your labor, and you see it's kind of going up, but it doesn't look real good. You remember how good it looked before, and in comparison, this is it's pretty sorry. That's discouraging. Or how about they got distracted? Distracted by the daily cares of living. No, we went to Jerusalem, we had the Feast of Tabernacles, but then we have to go back out to all of our other cities that have been messed up too, right? Rebuild our houses, rebuild our farms, get our little cities going. There's no one at Jerusalem. A city without people doesn't work very well. Abandoned city is really hard to live, it's hard to eat in. And so you're out spending your time and energy distracted by your daily living, putting the first things first, right? Business and family. Or how about this? They got complacent. We made an effort. We got that altar up. We're doing the daily sacrifices. I mean, I mean that's better than nothing. That's that's probably good enough for now. Right? Any of this seem like it'd be plausible for how they're justifying continuing to put it off? So what was the Lord's response to this? Well, you get that in verses 4 through 6 and then 9 through 11. They had been going through this time where they're not building, they're working on their own stuff, and here's what the Lord says. It says, Now therefore, saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there's none warm. He that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. And then again, verse 9 says, You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of my house. That is waste. And ye run every man to his own house. Therefore, heaven over you is stayed from dew, 
and the earth is stayed from her fruit. I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon uh, that which the ground bringeth up, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of your hands. What's all that saying? You've been working really hard on your stuff, and the Lord has been actively hindering it. This is not saying you've been lazy. You've been working it. You've been busting your tail. And the Lord is saying, I'm blown upon it. It's not coming to anything. Because you've got your priorities out of alignment. You're working hard. You're sowing a lot. You got, hey, there's not a whole lot of competition. You probably can have really big fields at this point. As big as you want to work. Sow a bunch, he says, but you're not bringing in very much. You're eating, but your, your stomachs still aren't filled. you still got hunger. You're drinking. you got something, but you're still not filled. You're thirsty. You're able to put clothes on your back, but they're not keeping you warm. Why? Earning wages is you put it in a bag with holes. I mean, imagine, imagine a bag. It's got full of Swiss cheese holes. You're putting your pennies in it, and you're walking along. Where are your pennies? They're just falling out. You're working hard, but you're not getting hit. It's like your wheels are just spinning. Okay? Why? Because mine house is waste, and ye run every man into his own house. Okay? He's actively frustrating your efforts. Because they're not doing what he told them to do. Not what he sent them to do. Not what he stirred up their spirit to do. And they, these are the ones who volunteered to go do that. Okay? So he gives some instruction. And this instruction is found in verse 8. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, verse 8, Go up to the mountain, bring wood, and build the house. Go, bring, build. Remember, Jerusalem is up in the mountains. Okay? Literally, all of your farms, probably down in the bottom land in the valleys around, easier to farm, right? Get off the easy land where it's investing you. Take the harder path. Go up to the mountain where I told you to go. Right? Get up there. It's difficult to get there, but go. Gather together and start working on it. Not only that, don't go empty-handed. Bring wood. Bring wood. You got to have something to build. Right? Need materials, resources. This is you're going to city of ruins. Not a whole natural resources and abundant trees there. The original temple was built from trees, trees, cedars. It came all the way from Lebanon. They chopped them down up there. They put them in the Mediterranean Sea, floated them down, and then they had to haul them up the mountain. Bring wood. Okay, don't go empty-handed. Plan ahead. This is not just for convenience or spur of the moment. Go up, bring wood, and finally build. Build just anything. No, build the house. And friends, you can put the Lord's house. Labor in the specific tasks that He gave you. All right, And then He gives you the why. Lord, why do I have to do that? I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified. Those are two very good reasons to do anything. It will please the Lord and it will glorify Him. Guess what? If you're doing anything that doesn't meet those two categories, Stop. It does not please the Lord or it does not glorify Him. I will please, I will take pleasure in it and I will be glad. Alright? So what's the reaction of the people? Because it hadn't been working. 
They've been scared, hindered, said, not now. His prophets come on the scene. And you know, sometimes prophets come on the scene and they're, they're ignored. But what was the reaction here? Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, governor, and Joshua, high priest, with all the people, all the remnant of the people, you've got your 42,000 plus, it's been some years, however many are there, all of them, obeyed. Obeyed the voice of the Lord. What was the first thing they did? They obeyed. It's a good thing for us to remember. Obey. Right? Obey. They obeyed the words, the voice of the Lord their God, the words of Haggai the prophet, as their Lord God had sent him, and the Lord did, and the people did fear before the Lord. First two things. They obeyed and they feared him. Before they'd been fearing men and the situation. In fact, if you go back and read when they set up the altar in Ezra, it said they started the daily sacrifices because they feared men. Like, we've got to do this or the Lord will keep us safe because all these men are around here that don't like us. All these enemies, we're not behind sealed walls and protected where we can have some illusion of security. Right? They feared men. Here it's they feared the Lord. Right? Fear. Reverential fear. Trusting and obeying Him. Now, this may not be a warm, fuzzy feeling where they're all suddenly sitting, hurrah, let's get going, you know, in the movie. And then you've got the, the montage with the song and they all happily build, right? This ain't necessarily that scene. But they obeyed and they feared. And then you know what? The Lord sent them some additional encouragement. He got a second message. The, then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's people, saying, here's the message, I am with you. That's good encouragement. You're obeying and you're fearing. The Lord's with you in that. And, verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the pure people. That's when the zeal came. That's when the energy and the fervor came after they obeyed and feared. Okay? I am with you. And then he stirs up the spirit. All right, and you know what happened? Within 23 days, they were there laboring. You say, why did it take 23 days? Well, that one, pretty fast, but two, they had to go get some wood. <laughs> they had to get their materials. They had to get up to the mountain from wherever they are. But within 23 days, they're starting to work. All right? And despite the continued opposition, because the opposition didn't give up, they wound up sending additional letters off to Darius and complaining about it. But within four and a half years of continuous work, it was finished. Right? That's what's going to happen. But they're going to have opposition throughout. But within three months, you know what the Lord did? He took away that curse of blowing on all their labors and replaced it with the blessing of their labors. That was in the ninth month. Three months later, the Lord lifted that curse in their labors and began to bless them. Right? And then later... He would actually take the opposition's efforts to hinder it and turn that on its head and use that to bless them. Because they're sending off this letter to Darius say, hey, they're doing what they're not supposed to and we don't know who did it and we told them that they're not supposed to and that they came back and said that Sarah, Cyrus said it was okay. Right? And he gave us permission. And so Darius goes and checks the records and he says, oh yeah, Cyrus did. Let them do it. And guess what? You help them and give them resources. Right? 
That's probably not at all what they were expecting when they went complaining to him. They'd been successful once with Artaxerxes, but the Lord turned that around to bless them. They were obeying him and fearing him. And then he sent the additional encouragement, I'm with you. And then gave their the zeal. Right? Okay? So that's you know, the book of Haggai in a nutshell. There's some other prophecies in there we won't look at this morning. But the question is, you're all sitting there going, how does this apply to us? Is he about to make us go build a sanctuary or something? <laughs> We're teeing up for a construction? No, I'm not teeing up for a construction project. How does this apply to us? All right? I want you to ask yourself the question, how diligently am I building the Lord's house? That's the question. Right. Which begs the next question, well, what's the Lord's house? Two different answers I'll give you. First one will be in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6. Short answer is in verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Was that price? The blood of Jesus. Therefore, because you are bought with a price, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Now we could read verses 9 through 18 to get a fuller context about what where this is verse comes into and it's all about the purification of self not saying that you can do anything to make you holy not saying you can do anything to remove sin Jesus did that right? but this is talking about removing those areas of your life where you are not pleasing God where you are not glorifying Him, where you're still engaging in the lust of flesh. And so, in one context, when you're talking about building the church, you're talking about your individual self. God describes you as being a temple of the Holy Ghost. It's His house. How are you building it? That's one context. The other context is the church members. Again, I'm not talking about physical building. Physical building, it's just for convenience. That's all it is. We can go sit out in brush arbors. We can sit out in the sun. Whatever. The church or the individuals. That's why it's called the called out assembly. It's not the assembly place. It's the called out assembly. Right? You're called out from the world. All right? You can see that uh, over in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he describes us as being lively stones. living stones. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll start reading verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, lay all that garbage away. That's the world. That's the old man. Instead, too, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And that's not just the, the word of the text, but that's the living word. Jesus, the word. If so be that you've tasted the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a 
living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. And ye also, ye, 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 as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. And holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, which we talked about last week, about offering up spiritual sacrifices. But you're lively stones. You are like the individual stones in a big church. Together you make up the church. Now you can see this uh, illustration used again over in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 19, it's talking about how you, particularly you as Gentiles, used to be way on the outside. There was nothing under the Old Testament law that was for you, um, other than maybe the corners of the fields if you're passing through as a poor person, but you didn't have any of these covenants of promise directed at you. It says, now, this is verse 19, Ephesians 2, 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens with the saints. Because of Jesus Christ and His work, He has made you into His family. He's removed that wall of partition, you know, taking away all the enmity between you and the Jews and you and God, and now you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. You're of his household and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord." in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. All right, so this is your image. Is that you've got that chief cornerstone. Imagine this big old stone is perfect. That's Jesus. And then beyond that, you've got the prophets, and you've got the apostles, and all the things that are laying the foundation for what the church was built off of. And then from that, you've got the individuals who are stacking together, fitly growing them together to have this... this this mental image, if you will, of this, the church of it being the house of the Lord. Together you make it up. Okay? Those are the two things that I want you to be thinking about the rest of this morning. Is how diligently am I building the house of the Lord? Is that the house that He has in me by myself? And the house of the Lord among my fellow brothers and sisters. And most particularly, well, the ones that you interact with on a regular basis, those of you in your, your local body, and assemble. Assembly. Right. So, you know, personal question. How would you rate your zeal in the service of the Lord this morning? Are you on fire? Are you ice cold? Lukewarm? Low boil? Where along the spectrum are you? God first stirred you up in the new birth. Right? Called you out of sin and darkness, gave you new life, and most likely, when you were first illuminated, you had a zeal. You were excited to learn about God, to know more about Him, to know what He expects of you, to know how to serve Him, and you started running your race. Maybe you got faster. But maybe now, some time has passed, and there's some things that are hindering you. Maybe it's fear. And let's, let's just be real clear. You really don't have much to fear in the very blessed and pleasant society that we live in. Right? 
Anybody expecting anybody to come through the door and shoot me for standing and speaking about Jesus openly publicly? No, it, it would be unheard of. It would make the news. People would be very upset. It would be so strange for someone to physically assault somebody just because they're sharing about Jesus Christ. Okay? So on the real scheme of fear, we don't have much to fear. But we've replaced that with other fears that we will gladly listen to, right? Well, you know, I'm not in church. I'm out around other people. I, I don't want to fear it. I'm afraid I'll offend somebody. So I just won't say anything. Or um, I have a fear of being wrong. Better just be silent and not say anything than say the wrong thing. Um, or maybe someone will correct me if I am wrong. Ooh, I'm afraid of that. Maybe someone will mock me. Maybe I'll be rejected by friends or family or co-workers. Maybe I, I'm afraid of being different. And so all these things, these fears can go into how do I serve the Lord and it makes you very closed in. Okay. What was the encouragement that Haggai gave? I'm with you. I am with you. And in chapter 2, it goes even farther. It said, not only am I with you, it said, be strong. This is 2-4. It said, be strong, Zerubbabel. Called him out by name. Be strong, Joshua, high priest, governor, high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land. I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. You know what a host is? The armies. That's all they report to God. He's the Lord of them all. That's who he has at his disposal. He's with you. And that prophet talking to his servant, there's more with us than with him. And the servant could just see, man, that's scary. I'm with you. Fear not. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're thinking, I'm just not good enough. I can't help others. You know, I don't know enough. They won't listen to me. Um, I know what I'm doing. I know the sins that I'm in. I just can't let them go. Uh, maybe I'll never let them go. I'll never have a greater seal. I'll never use these words like never or always. It's good to describe God, not us. It is easy for us to beat up on ourselves or get so self-focused, rather, that we feel like we cannot do anything in the Lord's service. Well, here's my advice to you. Quit looking at you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul had these wonderful visions, and then he correspondingly had some um, pretty... That was 12, 2 Corinthians. Um, some very uncomfortable thorn in the flesh. <coughs> Right? And he asked the Lord, please take it away. He asked him three times. The Lord said, no. Verse 9, he gave the answer said, My grace, this is red letters, that's your Bible. This is Jesus speaking to him in a vision. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Are you not good enough? No, you're not. But that doesn't mean the Lord can't use you. And he can be glorified by you. And in fact, he gets more glory than the weaker instruments he used. Ever notice that? Look at that pattern in the Bible. He doesn't choose the best and the brightest and the strongest by human degree. He tends to choose the weakest 
and the oddest. If you're an odd duck like me, congratulations. The Lord can be glorified <laughs> to great degree because it's not in your strength. Your weakness magnifies His strength. It demonstrates how great His strength is. My grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient is enough. It's not wanting. It's not lacking. He has enough. Okay? So you may be fearful. You may be discouraged. You may just be complacent. Right? Well, I do enough. You know, they set up that altar. I do enough. I show up to church. Sometimes. On time. Sometimes. I sing. Maybe. Maybe I hum. I pray. Occasionally. Mostly before meals. Particularly strangers around, or not around, whichever way you are. Some folks really like to pray in like public restaurants, but they never pray at home. Right? That's not any better than the Pharisees. Right? Maybe I share Christian memes. Maybe that's, that's my Christian memes. <laughs> right? Complacent. I do enough-ish. What do you expect from me? I'm just one person. Let's go to Matthew 25. This is a familiar parable. The parable of the talents. And that's not referring to your ability. That's a term for money. Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven is as a man. Right. So this is Jesus giving a description, trying to help these people understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto him his goods. Now... God being the man, y'all being the servants, that which he's given you, both of your abilities and your resources, those are his goods. They're not yours. And he said unto one, and he gave unto one five talents, amount of money, big amount, to another two, and another just one. Why did he do that? To every man according to his different or several ability. Okay? So not everyone is going to have the same resources given to them. And straightway he took his journey. And then he that received the five went and traded with the same. Now I always kind of wonder, wow, what is he trading? I mean, what? That, that word literally means toil. He's laboring with it. He is taking those resources and putting it to use. So it's not just, you know, going and bartering back and forth and trading. I mean, he could have gone and bought a farm and farmed it, whatever. But he was working with what the Lord, his master, gave him. And he generated double, right? Same thing with the two. He gained another two. But there was that one guy who said, ooh, my master's kind of scary. really don't want to take him off, so I'm going to take this one. I'm going to hide it over here in the dirt so I don't lose it and make sure I can give it back to him when he comes back. And the master come back, and he was obviously not pleased with that guy. With the first two, he says, now this, you hear people quote this, but this is what it comes from. This is what he's saying to the five and the two who doubled what they did. said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee a ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of my Lord. Some people talk about that like at the end of your life. You want the Lord to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, what did that servant do? He wasn't complacent. It didn't say that he had the most or the best or the brightest. He took what the Lord gave him and he used it. 
He didn't use it for himself. He didn't squander it. He didn't go spend the two and live riotously like our prodigal son, right? He put it into the Lord's service, and when the Lord came back, he was able to say, here you go. Here's both the original and what I've gained. He was not complacent. But the other one, he was described, the one who only had the one, a wicked and slothful servant. I really don't want the Lord to describe me as being the wicked and slothful servant. He's the one who's going to be tossed out by the wailing and gnashing of teeth. But slothful means lazy. Lazy. So what's the difference between the two? They both had resources given to them, but one didn't use it. But maybe, and this is most likely... Most, most likely the thing that's hindering your Christian walk with the Lord, your zeal and service to the Lord, your efforts to rebuild the house, is just distraction. Distraction of daily living. Distraction of those stupid computers that we carry around with us everywhere. Daily lives. Go to Luke 14. This is the parable of the wedding feast. I know this one. I won't spend a whole lot of time on it. Luke 14. Verses 16 through 20. A certain man made a great supper and bade many and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they, with one consent, began to make excuse. And the first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground. I must needs go see it. I pray have me excused. Another, I bought five oxen. I must go prove them or test them or try them out. You know, got a new car. Got a good driver. I prayed them. Pray thee, have me excused. Another, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Right. Similar uh, description would be over in uh, Matthew chapter 22. This one is explicitly talking about a wedding feast, and so the same same theme is being discussed there. Matthew 22 and verse 5. This is how the Lord describes their excuses. It says, They made light of it. And went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, right? To make light of it, to hold it in low esteem. Are you holding your calling to serve the Lord in low esteem? Do you make light of it like it's not a big deal, and instead you put business and family and whatever else you want to be distracted with first? That's not the right order. We do not want to make light of it. In fact, if you want to talk about family, where the order of that is, in Matthew 10, 32, it says, Whosoever shall confess before men... Uh, let's just go on down. I am come... Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am come not to send peace, but a sword. I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother-in-law, or mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own household... He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. You say, preacher, that's hard. Yeah, but that's also the word of God. Your priorities, family, can't rank before serving God. In this context, you know, 
the Jews who had Christians come out of their family members, those were terrible, 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 terrible times. I remember Paul, back when he was Saul, was hauling people off to jail. It would be the fathers accusing, my son's one of them, come get him. Or the son saying, it's my dad, come get him. But you imagine what happened before that conversation, dad coming to son, I need you not to do this. I need you to walk away from following after that crazy sect and the Nazarene, the Christ fellow. Leave it alone for the sake of family. Keep your head down. Be quiet. Okay? You probably don't have those conversations in your family explicitly. But when do you have family members that say, choose us over serving God? Just go along with the flow over serving God. Come see us instead of going to church. Come do this that you know is wrong, but it's family time. Say, this is hard. You should love the Lord your God with all all, your heart, soul, mind, body, strength, everything you got. It's not a figure of speech. Okay? What about business? I think Matthew 6 deals with that pretty explicitly. You can go read the whole chapter. I'll just pick on verse, let's see, 33, I guess. But, when you read a but, you got to read all beforehand. But, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What's the but? What are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? What are you going to wear? All these things the Gentiles seek, or the world seek. Natural man cares very much about where his next meal is going to come from and what he's going to wear. And those are just the basic things. I mean, but ultimately, it's caring about this world and the needs and the wants. And, and let's face it, most of us don't have to struggle with the needs. Some of us do. But often, what we're really distracted about is just the wants. In all those, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What do you see? God's kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Alright? So you, you may fall in some of these categories. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your lives explicitly. But what should you do? What should you do? Go. Bring. Build. Go up. Go up to the mountain. Going up the mountain is hard. When you've been in the dark valleys and you've been uh, just falling into to sin and decay, it's hard to walk out of those swampy, nasty mines. It's easier to just kind of stay down there. But go up. Go up. Gravity? That's like sin. It's always willing to pull you down. So choose your path carefully. You may be going up, but if you're walking on shale, smooth rock, it's really easy. That's that's when you're getting into a situation and say, well, I'm not actually sinning, but you're doing things that will very likely do something. It's like trying to walk up a mountain on shale. 
as opposed to finding that right path and going with diligence, with effort, and exertion. Sometimes it's tiring. That's okay. Remember the zeal thing came later. Go. Where should I go? Well, let's give a... Go to church! Go to your local church whenever they meet. And don't just sit there like a dead stone. You a lively stone. Sing. Sing fervently. Pray. Pray earnestly. Fellowship with each other with purpose. It's not to jaw about the weather or the sports or whatever. I'm here to build up the house of the Lord. Me and them. Is what I'm saying in fellowship building them up? Or is it of no profit whatsoever? I mean, is that like making sandcastles on top of somebody's stone and windows? What was the point? But fellowshipping with purpose. Okay, so that's one thing. You need some more examples? Go to meetings. What? Yeah. That's like a spiritual feast. Okay? This is your daily, weekly meal, right? You get the opportunity to go to buffets. And yet we look at it as drudgery. But you're building up the Lord's house. Your encouragement to these little churches when you come and visit them. Your encouragement to the pastor. Go in fellowship with other members outside of church functions. Encourage them. with Again, intentionality. How can I encourage this person in their walk with the Lord? Right? How can I turn their focus and my focus to the Lord in our conversations? And go sing to the infirm, those who can't get out. That's what we're going to do this afternoon. We're going to sing to Brother Frank and Sister Joanne. That's building up the house of the Lord. Very few people come. What about just going when you see needs? Practical needs. Go, go meet them. Be ready to do good at every opportunity you get. And here's the kicker. Be looking for opportunities rather than looking for excuses for why I can't help with the one that I already see. Okay? I think this is reinforced in Hebrews 10, 23, and 25. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised... And let us consider one another. Be thoughtful of one another. To provoke. And we can't just stop there. It's good at provoking one another. We're good at that. That's our old man. But to provoke one another unto love and good works. Colon, it continues, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, encouraging, calling, and inviting, and so much more as ye see the day approaching, that you are living with a passion the Lord's coming back. And that that's real. And so you're being thoughtful of the other living stones around you. How can I encourage them? How can I provoke them? How can I cause them to grow in love? And as you're doing that, you're growing yourself. So go. And don't go empty-handed. Right? Bring your talents. Now this, I'm not talking about money. This, I'm talking about your abilities Bring your treasure and your time. I got three T's there, right? <laughs> Talent, treasure, and time. And a southern word, attention. Right? <laughs> Bring your time, treasure, talents, and attention when you go. Don't go empty-handed. 
Don't go just to check the box. I could go to Brother Frank's and I could sit beside him for an hour and I could not do a lick of good. Sometimes when I go visiting and we just jog for an hour and I don't really do a good job of bringing up the Lord at all, I kind of feel like I've wasted my time. Now, it may have been a nice thing and they're lonely, but did I build up the house of the Lord or I just kind of check the box? So don't go empty-handed. And finally, build. Build. Build the Lord's house. We're not just... It's not just building, right? I could go build bee boxes or whatever. We might got a lot of bee boxes. I could go build. But I need to be building what the Lord told me to build. These folks were building, right? They were building their own houses. They were building barns. They were building the stuff, the cities that they wanted and needed. But is that where their first priority needed to be? Need to be building the Lord's house. So looking at first at ourselves internally... What could that look like? That could be actively fleeing from sin. I think all of us could think of one off the top of our head that we know that we struggle with and we haven't put it to death. Work on actively fleeing from it. We could seek the Lord in our daily prayers and actually make them daily prayers, not weekly prayers, or occasional or semi you know. Seeking the Lord, growing our knowledge of the Lord, both in our study and through our prayer life. So we can build up this temple that the Lord has given us, which is both our body and our spirit. To be ready with the church to build there, be ready with the needs, be ready to meet them with a glad heart. That goes back to our internal building, right? It's one thing to check the box, but doing it with a sorry <coughs> attitude doesn't please the Lord. He doesn't take pleasure in that, and He doesn't get glory by that, by you doing what you're supposed to do with a bad attitude. be asking ourselves, what can I do to help you and you and you and you? And not just you know, whatever the practical needs are. Yeah, meet those. But what can I help them in their walk with the Lord? Is this hard? Yeah, otherwise you'd all be doing it. <laughs> Does it come naturally? Not to anyone I've met. Is it uncomfortable? It's been my experience. So why should you do it? It will please the Lord! And it will glorify Him! Therefore, it's worth it. So, today, you can start by obeying. You heard the word of the Lord. Obey and fear the Lord for His sake. Lord, I may not feel like doing this, but I fear you and your great name and you're worthy of my trust and obedience. I'll obey. And try. Try to start. And while you're trying to start, we can all collectively be playing, be collectively praying that like the Lord stirred them up, that He would stir us up. That's the revival we want. And the Lord blesses, and He sustains. And He'd pour out blessings from the windows of heaven, right? Such that we couldn't contain it. 
And I bet that's not going to be in silver and gold or dollars. Because does that really glorify Him? No. But a people who are on fire to serve Him, regardless of all the doubts and fears and distractions that are so prevalent in this sinker's fallen world, who are still chomping at the bit to serve Him, does that glorify Him? Yeah, you better believe it. We can be praying that He would, that He would send that zeal. But whether He does or not, continue to obey. Keep trying. I bet He will eventually. But most of all, remember, you're not alone. He's promised that He is with you. I am with you. He's also promised that He'll never leave you or forsake you. Thank you all. Time and attention. Anybody have a number you'd like to say in closing?